0: Today's guest on the podcast is Mike Rouse. Mike is an ultra runner, um, a winner of the Ultraman triathlon, which is like double the distance of a normal Ironman plus some more. And he's the owner of the Run Texas store in Frisco, Texas. But he's got a fascinating story as to how he came to be a runner and to do so much more beyond running. So I hope you all enjoyed this episode with Mike Rouse. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Mike Rouse. Hi, Mike.
1: Hello. How are you?
0: I am good. I'm hot. You're in Texas, so you're probably hot too.
1: (laughs) Yes, ma'am. It's a little warm. Although, if you had told me two weeks ago it was going to be as cool as it's been the last few days, I would have said you're crazy.
0: It was nice this morning, but it's really hot. I know. It's just like a bunch of old people talking about the weather, but I feel like it's it's hot. I want to talk about it. It is hot.
1: It is hot. But it's August in Texas, so that's yeah, what it's it supposed to be.
0: Absolutely. So let's hear a little bit about your story. I, I got a connection from, I guess, someone who read your book on on Instagram, and she said, you have got to interview this guy. And she told me a little bit about your story, and I said, you know what? You're right. He is perfect for this podcast. So let's hear it. Let's hear a little bit about your story.
1: Well, um, I don't know how
0: long you want me to talk about it, but it's...
1: <laughs> As I tell people all the time, I could talk for three minutes or three days about uh, my life. Uh, (laughs) But uh, to make a long, long, long story short, um, I grew up in Texas and uh, was a very successful custom home builder. Went through some trying times. I won't get into all the details of that. But uh, when I turned 30 years old, uh, went through a divorce and some other things and uh, got into I guess you called the wrong crowd. Although I accept full responsibility, but right. uh, started playing golf on a regular basis, five, six days a week. And uh, my my one of my friends was well to do and had several Lear jets, and so we flew all over the country playing in golf tournaments. Uh, but we we created a very high party lifestyle. And what I mean by that is we were doing a lot of drugs and alcohol. Um, right. And so uh, I was actually on city council there in Abilene and was running for mayor it was, well, I, was, I wasn't running, but I'd throw my hat in the ring that I was going to run for mayor because I knew everybody there. I grew up in, uh, had lived there for 30 plus years. Um, and so I ended up getting busted for cocaine, uh, in 1984. Uh, and, the uh, you know, legal system wanted to kind of send a message that this kind of you know, action's not tolerable. So I was handed down a five-year prison sentence. And and on January the 2nd, 1986, I reported to the penitentiary.
0: Wow. Um, So was that kind of a throw the book at you? Yes, ma'am. Yeah.
1: And, uh, you know, and I can honestly say, in looking back, I I deserved it. It, Everything that I'd done was illegal. Uh, But, you know, at the time, I was I was really struggling with it because I thought, you know, I, I wasn't a bad guy. You know, I own my own company. I'm, you know, in politics and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I kind of had a bad outlook. But but again, I knew I deserved it because I I was doing something illegal.
0: Now, how much um, did did you consider yourself an addict at the time, or was it more recreational for you?
1: Well, if you would have asked me, I would have said it was rec- uh, recreational. That said, I was doing about $1,000 a week uh, Uh. of cocaine. And I I don't know how much money I spent on alcohol, but a a lot. Uh,
0: And
1: and so I literally never was without cocaine in my pocket.
0: And how Uh, long did this go on?
1: For three years.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, from 1982 to uh, 1984. Uh, I had a serious, serious habit. Uh, And so my health... Although I didn't think it was that bad, but I weighed, I was six foot tall, 120 pounds when I reported to oh prison. My goodness. Yeah, I was, I was a walking death trap. Uh, and so in, in hindsight, I know that it literally did save my life. Uh, and so I did report to prison on January the 2nd, went through all the diagnostics of, you know, education and addiction and health screening, all the things that they do, you know, the first few days that you're there just to kind of see what they're working with. Uh when that was over, I was assigned a job there in the penitentiary. But uh, I, I realized in those two weeks that, you know, I didn't know how long I was going to be. I knew I had a five year sentence. I was I assumed I'd serve anywhere from one to three years of that uh, because, you know, obviously you get out on good, good behavior and, you know, the, the prisons are so crowded that they get you out as quick as possible if you're not a you know, physical threat to anyone. So, uh, but I didn't know how long, but I, I knew that during the time that I was there, I needed to do something to get my life back on track because that wasn't where I wanted to spend my life. Um, and I didn't want to have to worry about it when I got out. So uh, on January the 16th, two weeks after I, you know, went in, January 16th, 1986, I went out on the prison yard and saw guys running around the exterior, uh, and, you know, kind of in a circle around the exterior of the yard. And I thought, you know, I've never run in my life. Uh, never, ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's something that I can do in that hour that I'm out of my cell to, you know, do something that's somewhat healthy and positive. And so I'll go do it. And so I asked one of the guys, you know, what what the deal was. And he said, well, two and a half laps is a mile. So I thought, well, you know, a couple miles will be good. So I'll just run five laps of this thing.
0: I couldn't, <laughs> On I, your first time? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, two miles. It didn't right. sound like a long way, you know. Well, I couldn't finish one lap. Without walking, uh, that's that's how out of shape I was, uh, and again, I'd never run in my life. Uh, but I'd grown up playing golf, uh, and like I said, I'd played golf for the three years prior to my incarceration. So uh, I'd always been involved in sports and would thought thought of myself as an athlete. And so it was kind of a, a slap in the face that, good grief, you're not any kind of an athlete, you can't even run a, you know, half a mile.
0: <laughs> that slap in the face, that is a hard one to receive because I received that one to like about eight years ago i i was an olympic weightlifter in my teenage years and then i did nothing but eat pizza and drink beer and get out of shape and i went to join a gym and one of the guys i worked with offered to show me around to show me how to work out and i thought oh my gosh this guy thinks i have never worked out a day in my life this is horrible <laughs> and yeah then the truth of the matter was when i started to run um, yeah, I had a similar experience to you. <laughs> wow. Yeah.
1: So, um, I, I ended up, you know, having to start walking. So I would walk until I felt like I could run again and then run as far as I could walk, run, walk, run until I got the five laps done. Uh, cause I could say it was kind of a slap in the face and I, I wasn't going to be, you know, denied doing what I set out to do. And right. so. I finished those five laps, went back to my cell, and, you know, obviously, like I said, I'd never run in my life. I'm 33 years old, Uh, and and as I'm laying in my bunk that night, my legs started to tighten up and get sore, but it was a good pain. Uh, It was a good sore because I knew that I'd done something good for myself, and it was healthy, and so it kind of challenged me to say, you know what, you're going to go do that again and again and again until you can run those five laps without stopping, and so that's what I did.
0: Was it an interesting feeling to kind of feel all the feelings in your body and all of that after using cocaine for, you know, three years? And I I find so much with addiction that we're just numbing everything, you know, numbing emotions, numbing our physicality. Was it sort of an out of body experience to feel yourself and your feelings and your emotions and your body again?
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, I'd never run before. So it wasn't like, Oh, I remember what this used to feel like. I, I really didn't know. And so it, it was all new to me, but I say I liked it. And I went out the next day and I still couldn't do, you know, about the same and kept just going at it every single day. Uh, make a long story short, at the end of 14 months, I was up to six to seven miles a day.
0: Wow. Uh, that's, fast it, huh? <laughs> that's fast in an well, hour. Huh? Well, that's fast in an hour or two in the yard right Uh,
1: i mean i mean i i was lightweight right i I said i was 120 pounds when i walked in i walked out i was about 135 or 140 i don't remember now but something i I was light and, and, and and athletic so you know i was doing okay uh and and what else you do right right when you're when you're running seven days a week uh for a year you can get in shape pretty quick so uh but when i got out i i had fallen in love with running because it had given me some self-respect it had given me some healthy feeling about myself so all the good positives you can get from running i got um and uh just to backtrack for a moment uh one of the things that happened while i was there probably i don't remember now five or six months into my stay at prison uh a guy came in to talk to us one day and um An AANA class, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous class. And uh, he was an ex-convict. And as he started his presentation, he said, one thing that I want to start off with uh, is that I've got some good news and some bad news. And he says, the good news is that when you get out of here, when you're paroled out, all you have to do to get yourself back together is to change one thing. That's the good news. And I'm thinking... Wow, that's that sounds easy. One thing, right? Oh. He says, now here's the bad news. That one thing is everything.
0: Oh. <laughs> and I thought, what, is,
1: what, what does he mean by that? And he kind of paused and he says, what I mean is you have to change everything. You have to change your career. Don't do what you were doing. You have to change where you live because those old friends are going to take you back to your old habits. You have to change the way you think. And he kept talking about, you know, everything that had to change. And I thought, wow, that's that's going to be pretty tough. I grew up in Abilene. I've lived there my entire life. I've been in the construction business with my dad for 13 years. That's all I know. Uh, you know, and, and all the different things that I thought, how do I change that? How do I change? And so, but I, I knew he was probably right. And so when I got out, I took his advice. And I literally, I, I filed bankruptcy before I went into prison because I'd lost everything uh, through, you know, attorneys' fees and you know, my loss of business because nobody wanted to do business with the guy who was going to prison, right? Right. And so <clears throat> I literally said, you know, I am, I am going to change everything. And so when I got home, uh, my sister and brother-in-law loaned me a car, a 14-year-old car. Uh, a friend gave me a place to stay in Dallas uh, on his couch. And I left the construction business. My dad had retired while I was incarcerated. So I had no money to start a construction company anyway. But And, and I literally came to Dallas with nothing except my clothes and wow. a used car. And I, I got very fortunate. I, I got a job in a running store. <laughs> and fast forward 32 years, uh, I've been blessed to have you know, really put my heart and soul into running and running has given back to me much more than I ever gave to Ed. And that sounds kind of crazy, because running is a sport, and it's an inanimate object, uh, but it's the, it's the process of running that I think has given that to me, and so now my goal in life is to give back to running what it gave to me, which was my health, my career, my lifestyle, everything about you know what it has done, and give that to other people.
0: So the whole idea of changing everything. I love this. I I'm actually in the middle of writing a book right now and I have a chapter called The Whole Life Overhaul which is kind of the same sentiment that you know if you want to change something you've got to really change everything but you can't change everything overnight. But right. you kind of did. So do you think I mean obviously it wasn't on your own free will to <laughs> to change everything overnight. But do you think that was easier to just start fresh and say, I'm going to change everything. Or do you think it would have, would have been like, what, what do you think about that?
1: Well, yeah, you know, I guess for me, Meredith, it, I, I was forced into it. Yeah. You know, uh, it's almost, I don't have a, a, a good analogy other than, you know, it's, it's like when somebody gets caught doing something and now they say, oh, oh yeah, I'm guilty. Well, you didn't come forward until you got caught. Right. Right. You know, now that you got caught, you'll admit that you were wrong or that you did something bad. But until then you you continue to do it. It's like with when I was doing drugs. I had several people tell me, Mike, you got a drug problem. And I'm like, No, I don't. I own a construction company. I play golf every day. I fly around the country playing in tournaments. My friends are wealthy. How how how's what I'm doing bad? You know? Well, once I got caught, it was easy for me to say, you know what? What I was doing was stupid. <laughs> it was yeah. wrong. It was against the law. But I didn't come forward until I got caught. And so once once incarcerated. I literally had no choice but to change everything. And I think most of us, that's why we don't necessarily change things quick enough is that, you know, we're used to what we're doing. And change is hard. Change is never easy. Um, And so, again, I was forced into it. I didn't have a choice but to to change everything. But I think for most people to start thinking, okay, I've been getting up at six o'clock, you know, showering eating breakfast and going to work at 7, 8, whatever. Now I've got to get up an hour earlier to go for a run or go for a bike ride or go for a swim or go to the gym. I'm not used to that. This is the way I've always done it.
0: Right. It's really so, hard to take that first step. It, it
1: is. The first step is hard. That first step for me was hard, running around that track. Uh, but, again, I, I had to do something. Uh, and so, you know, I, I did it.
0: Well, what kept you going? Was it the simple fact that you sort of made a promise to yourself and you said, "I'm going to do this"? Is that what was that enough to keep you going? As far as running, like when you when you set out to run and it was really hard and you you know you had to stop. What what kept you going and going and going?
1: I, well, I think part of it was, uh, you know, I, I just came from a very positive family. My mom and dad were very positive people. They, you know, they did the right thing and and so i've just always had that kind of an attitude uh you know some people were born into a bad situation you know they come from a broken home or they come from parents that had you know didn't treat them like they should have as a child and so they they came from a negative background and so they don't really know the right and the wrong i came from a very positive family of giving or of a giving mother and a giving father uh, very loving and kind. They were always there for me, and so I didn't want to. I didn't want to lose that. Um, and so um, I say I, I just came from a very positive background, and, mm-hmm. and being in a penitentiary is nothing positive about.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would imagine not. You didn't find too much, too many, like rainbows in there. I
1: bet. No, no. But that said, Meredith. I, I took it very positively. I, um, I love making friends. And, you know, one funny aside to my story, um, when I, the night that I paroled out, they paroled out at midnight because, you know, 1201 is the next day. That's the day you're supposed to get out, right? Right. So everybody's released from prison at, at 1201 at night.
0: That's so and crazy.
1: <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it? But, you know, you think about it, if you're locked up for however long, I was 14 months. Some people are 15 years. You don't want to spend one more day in that they place. They should just right? let you
0: out at dinner time,
1: though. I mean, really. Well, I, I know. <laughs> but but again, if you're going to get out at dinner, why not get out at midnight? You know, because that last 12 hours would seem like an eternity. It's, yeah. that's it. it sounds crazy. But, you know, but my point is, is that so at 1201, you know, my name's called on the on the loudspeaker. My cell door opens. I walk out. I walk down to the, you know, to the boss's station. Um uh, and, you know, they're there with all the paperwork and, you know, my clothes to be released in, you know, and I go in and change. And they two of the guards said, we'll walk you to the door. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird because I've never, you know, I've been in for 14 months. I've seen a lot of guys come and go. I've never seen them do that, you know. And there's going to be a taxi outside the prison to take me to the bus station for the ride home. And when we walked out the gate, these two guards walked out with me. And they're saying that one of them said to me rouse you know this is hard for us to say but we're really gonna miss you wow wow (laughs) a a prison guard just told me he's gonna miss me and he he was being very (laughs) sincere about it he wasn't making fun right and when we got out to the to the, the the fence and the you know the thing buzzes that you know the gate is now open i turned to shake their hands and one of them had tears running down his face.
0: oh my goodness
1: and i said What's wrong? He says, I really meant what I said. I'm going to miss you. You've been a ray of hope to us. You treated us with respect. You never talked back to us. You treated us like we were just another man. And he said that we don't see that very often. Wow. And so again, I I'm a lucky guy. Uh, I I know that sounds like a crazy word because you don't always create like uh, you know, uh, but I'm a very lucky guy that I've been given that kind of a personality that I, I love people and care about people. And those guys saw it. I
0: mean, um, it sounds like you were able to turn the the bad experience into something good, but I mean, has there been any time that you've dealt, I know a lot of people when they're trying to change, they deal with like the shame from the past or the disappointment that maybe other people had. Did, did you go through those emotions or were you always so focused on the positive that you just kind of were able to move past?
1: You know, I, I think I always po- uh, tried to keep the positive part. And here's mm-hmm. the reason why. Everybody's got trials and tribulations, right? And we've all gone through them. We're all going to have them more, over and over again. Uh, it, but it's how you deal with it. Uh, and so I've, I've just always had a positive outlook about life. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why. Even in the midst of going to prison. I said to myself, this is gonna be a learning experience. I'm gonna get something out of it and I'm gonna move forward. Uh, I accepted responsibility for it. And I think that's part of my world's problem today. Nobody wants to accept responsibility. It's somebody else's fault.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: it's always somebody else's fault. It's the government's fault. It's my neighbor's fault. It's my spouse's fault. You know, we don't want to accept personal responsibility. And so uh fortunately for me, I was able to accept responsibility and, and to just say, you know what, Mike? My- you screwed, you screwed yourself in this deal.
0: Yeah. You know? And a lot, you know, to extend on personal responsibility, I think another thing that's really interesting about your story is it's not so much personal responsibility as you got put in a situation and you said, you know, I'm in prison. I don't have much I can do, but what can I do? And you were very resourceful. I mean, you didn't have a lot of resources where you were, but you said, Hey, right. I can, I can run, I can do what I can with what I have. And I think like as an extension of personal responsibility, that's also a big thing that we as a society are lacking. I mean, people say, you know, I don't have the money, the time, whatever resource, um, when really we just got to be a little more creative.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. I,
1: I agree a hundred percent, you know? Um, and I think that's one of the beauties that I have with my running, I was a triathlete for a little while, uh, from 2002 uh, till about 2012. For about ten years, I tried to be a triathlete. Uh, (laughs) What do you
0: mean you tried?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean I was a triathlete. I was never. Uh, and I'm a three-time Ultraman World Champion. Which right. is right, I
0: was gonna say, like let's <laughs> let's um let's kind of explain what I was. I tried to be a triathlete, and you're an Ultraman World Champion. So tell tell the audience what an Ultraman is.
1: <laughs> kind of tell to tell the whole story. In 2002, uh, I've been I've been doing ultra running for several years because again, my my whole personality is whatever you can. If, if 10 is good, 20 is better.
0: Right. You and know, so wait wait wait. So what is an ultra? Let's define ultra running. Is it anything over a marathon?
1: Yes. So okay. an ultra an ultra run is any any race that's a distance of over a marathon, 26.2 miles. So kind of the typical first start of an ultra marathoner would be to run a 50 kilometer race, which is 31 miles. Okay. Which that's five miles.
0: miles too far, Mike.
1: Well, yeah, right. <laughs> that's So it's five miles farther than a marathon. But if you run a, a 50 kilometer race, you're considered an ultra marathoner. All right so and then yet they've got 50 mile races, 100 kilometers, which is 62 miles, 100 miles, 24 hour runs, all kinds of different things but so after I had done you know got into the running business after I got out of prison, uh, started doing 5Ks, 10 Ks decided to do a marathon just to kind of check it off the bucket list, so to speak, and had a blast doing it uh, fortunately, I really started to get healthy uh, I, well decently healthy and to qualify for the Boston Marathon so I go run Boston and one of my buddies who was older than me quite a quite a few years older than me called me up and said hey let's go to lunch I want to hear about Boston how it went I said fine so we we're sitting there eating lunch and I'm you know I've got my chest out and I'm bragging about my 310 marathon at Boston all this stuff and this older gentleman as we finish says well that's a great story Mike he says but when you become, want to become a real man, you can come run my 50-mile race that I put on. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about, 50 miles? Because I'm, I'm thinking a marathon is you know the farthest anybody can run, right? This is in 1988, about and a half after I got yeah, out.
0: Yeah, so people weren't doing this that much.
1: No, no, yeah. there weren't that many. And so I said, explain this. And he said, well, on my 50th birthday, and I'm 34 at the time, right? So this is, he's probably in his mid fifties, 55 ish. So he's 20 years older than, than I am. He said, when I turned 50, some friends and I went out to Bachman Lake, which is a, just over a three mile loop around this little lake here, in Dallas. Um, he said, on my 50th birthday, we went out and we did 16 laps around the lake 50 miles. And we had a blast and it was to celebrate being healthy at 50. And uh, he said the next year we went out to do it again. And about forty fifty people showed up to run it with us, and he said it, it kind of clicked, and so we decided to make a race out of it. So the next year we we called it the the Dallas Five O. Uh, and so he said, "We now it's eight nine years in the making at the time," and he says, uh, "When you become a man, you can come run the fifty miles." Well, that was just enough of a challenge, kind of like that day that I tried to run around the prison yard, right. And couldn't do it his his little statement was just enough to say you know what mike get your butt out there and next year and run 50 miles so i trained over the next six or eight months in january of 1988 uh or 89 i guess it was uh a year later i went out and ran the 50 mile race and had a blast <laughs> had an absolute blast so i i'd did a couple more fifty milers that were, you know, within driving distance of, of Dallas over the next few months. And one day I'm I'm sitting there watching wild world wide world of sports. And they had a, a show on about the Western States one hundred. And I'm thinking, well, that sounds crazy, I wonder what this is. And it was a running race in Squall Valley, California, Northern California, where men and women ran hundred miles to the most beautiful country I'd ever seen in my life. I'm like, wait a minute. That's twice as far as I, (laughs) as I'm doing. And but but it was so intriguing. And I thought, okay, that's my next goal. You know,
0: wow, just to double it,
1: just to double it. (laughs) (laughs) So I started, you know, researching it. Found out you have to have another race that you've run under 24 hours in order to to qualify to get into a lottery. So I went out and I ran the Arkansas Hundred a few months later. Qualified, got into the lottery, got selected, and so I. 1992, I went out to Western States and ran the Western States 100 and became a what I would call a real ultra runner and did that for numerous years. And then when I turned 60, uh, excuse me, 50 in 19, uh, I, I'm sorry, 2002, uh, I decided, you know what, I've been doing ultras now for 12, 13 years. I'm kind of over it. I still like doing it, but I want to do something different. And so I decided to get into triathlon and do an, an Ironman.
0: So at 50, you started triathlon.
1: Never swam across a pool in my life. Did not know how to swim.
0: Wow. How did you learn?
1: Had never owned a bicycle since I was a 12-year-old kid riding a bike to school, which isn't really riding a bike
0: compared to being a
1: triathlete, right? Right. Uh, So I found out who a great swim coach was. I was living in San Diego at the time. And I went out, got me some goggles and a Speedo, (laughs) and I, I went to the pool, and said, hi, my name is Mike Grouse. I'm a runner, but I I want to get into triathlon. I don't know how to swim. And so Alan Vassard was the guy's name. And Alan says, well, jump in, swim across the back. Let me see your stroke. And I said, sir, I I told you, I don't know how to swim. And he says, well, I've been coaching for 20 years. I've seen it all. Don't worry about it. Let me just see what your stroke looks like. And I said, okay, but I'm telling you, I can't swim. And I literally didn't have a clue. Uh, And so I got into the water and I thought you held your breath as long as you could and then would exhale, inhale, hold it until you couldn't. And, you know, I couldn't get across the pool. Right. And so I got about halfway and I was already tired, kind of like that first day that I went for a run in 1986. And I stopped and I turned around and he motions with his hand for me to come back up to the the side. And I walked up, you know, walked through the water and I got there and he says, what was that? (laughs) And I said, sir, I told you I can't swim. I have no idea how to swim. What is your goal? And I said, I want to do an Ironman. And he says, we've got work to do. Because he said, you are absolutely not even in the game.
0: And you're and like, said, tell you're me right. something I don't know, right? Yeah,
1: right. And so that got that's, that's how I started. He showed me how to do it. He put me in a stroke lane with men and women that had, had strokes and couldn't swim because of their, you know, they had an arm that was locked up or a leg or whatever. He puts me in that with them. Oh, my goodness. And so, you know, here I am thinking I'm this great athlete. And I'm with, you know, old people that can't do anything. Uh, But make a long story short, six months later, I did uh, Ironman Lake Placid.
0: Wow. So six months. You went from Sinking Like a Stone to Lake Placid.
1: Exactly. Well,
0: how did the bike progression happen? Because that's a huge jump.
1: Well, that was a... Once I had kind of started the swimming thing, I was at one of my running workouts on Saturday morning, and one of the greatest triathletes that's ever been in the sport, in fact, she's Hall of Famer, Makili Jones. Makili mm-hmm. uh, ran in our our running group. That was her run training portion of her triathlon. Uh, you know, she's a nine-time world champion, a Ironman world champion, and eight-time ITU world champion. Uh, and I say one of the greatest triathletes that's ever, ever been born. But she was in our running group. So on one Saturday morning, about two weeks after I started swimming, she comes up beside me on our warm up and says, so, Mikey, I hear that you want to become a triathlete and do an Ironman. And I said, yeah. She started laughing. And I said, why are you laughing? She says, well, because I know you can't swim and you can't ride a bike. So I don't know (laughs) how you think you're going to be a triathlete. And I said, well, I don't know, but I'm going to do it. And she says, well, I'll tell you what, I don't think you can. But when you can swim two thousand yards without stopping, I'll get my box sponsor to give you a bike. Oh wow! And I said, you know what? I'm calling that, and I'm gonna I'm gonna learn. So sure enough, that was kind of my inspiration. It was almost like that day I started running when I realized I couldn't run two miles. That it was kind of like, okay, boy, pick up your <laughs> boots, pick up your boots, and go. And so Makili's words to me kind of spurred me on. And so I I religiously went to the pool Monday, Wednesday, Friday for. Several mo- weeks and months, and learned how to, you know, swim. Did it, and she got me a bike.
0: That's awesome.
1: And, and so, uh, another buddy of mine that was a tri coach taught me how to ride it, showed me how to do the pedals and stuff. And I still wasn't very good at it. But so anyway, I, I, I went and did Lake Placid, finished the Ironman, and uh, a little over twelve hours.
0: Oh and- my goodness, Mike! That is so amazing. <laughs> that is. so <laughs> Yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, your ultra running base training sure didn't hurt, but that's no. still really incredible.
1: Yeah. Wow. And, and so I did two or three more, cause I fell in love with that. Cause again, my whole attitude has always been more, you know, more, if one thing is good, two things is better, four things is great, you know? <laughs> and so the 12 hours of getting to do exercise to me was just wonderful. So I did a few more Ironmans, kept doing some of my ultra marathons and I'm over in Kona for the Ironman world championships, not to participate, just to watch, uh, the brand that I was working for Mizuno, that that was part of my territory was Hawaii. So I went over to the Ironman, I'm, uh, over there working and I walked into the running store, Big Island Running Company and I'm in there, you know, selling shoes for the week and, uh. This lady walks in, and the owner of the store says, Mike, you, you two need to meet. And I said, hi, I'm Mike Rouse. And she said, my name is Jane Bacchus. I said, hi, Jane, how are you? Uh, why does Diane think we should meet? And she says, well, I'm not sure. Uh, what do you do? She said, well, I own a race here called the Ultraman World Championships. And I said, "What what is that? And she said, well, it, <clears throat> it's kind of like an Ironman, but it's a little bit longer. <laughs> <clears throat> she said, we circled the, the big Island." And I said, What do you mean you circle it? And she says, Well, we started at the pier where they started the Ironman swim. We swam. We swam to Cahoe, which is 6.2 miles. And then the uh, day, it's a three day race. Day one, you you do the 6.2 mile swim and then 90 mile bike to the volcano. You spend the night. Next morning, you start at the volcano where you stopped the night before. You ride to the southeast corner of the island, turn north, go up through Hilo to the northeast corner, over to the northwest corner, which is Javi. Which is 171 miles. You spend the night there, and then day three, you run from Javi back to the start. So you completely circle the the island. Day three is a Uh, 52.4 mile run, double marathon. And I'm obviously intrigued, stupid as I am. Because you uh, like to double
0: your distances. You like to do, yeah, makes sense. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So it's two and a half times the swim, two and a half times the bike of an Ironman, and then double the run. So, uh, I said, you know what? I'm all in. How do I do it? And she says, well, first of all, you have to qualify. And I said, well, the only thing I'm, I I mean, I've done some Ironmans. I've done 24-hour runs, 100-mile races, et cetera. And I work in the running business. And she said, send me your resume, you know, sport resume, and we'll see. So I did. And she decided to let me do it. And so uh, Thanksgiving weekend, November 2005, uh, I did the Ultraman in Kona and won the 15 over age group as world champion. That's amazing. <clears throat> and and then you did it.
0: it again. and I again. did it
1: again and again and again. I did it six times, uh, three time world champion for my age group. And, uh, really? it just fell in love with it. Uh, you know, to be able to do what you love all day long for three straight days, uh, in a race. I mean, it was incredible.
0: <laughs> and
1: so, uh, that's that's the reason why I say I'm kind of a triathlete
0: yeah right kind of you're you're on the other end of triathlete
1: (laughs) well thank you I appreciate it
0: that's amazing so how all those races I mean that's a lot of wear and tear on the body like how have you made it through injuries and I mean are you just like what what is the what is your health like your do do your feet hurt
1: (laughs) you know Meredith it's uh I, i I'm not a superstitious guy uh, at all. Uh, but, and I don't mean this as a, in a bragging statement, but the reality is I've been running again since January 16th, 1986. So 32 years. Uh, I've logged over 120,000 miles running. Uh, I don't really keep up with bike or that kind of stuff because I, I don't ride anymore. I haven't ridden a bike in five years now. I quit triathlon, but, uh, <laughs> but I've run over 120,000 three to five thousand miles a year every year for 32 years uh, and I can honestly say I've never had a running injury. Oh
0: my goodness uh, that has that you're just a genetic master, i I'm, that's all <laughs> well you know it, I, I, I,
1: I say that because I and the reason why I said I'm not superstitious I sure enough probably tomorrow I'll have a pulled no, you no
0: know, you know. but
1: but I feel very fortunate in several ways. number one genetics uh, I, I feel very lucky. You know, and I don't know why, because I, I, I you know, but I, I am. I'm very lucky genetically. Also, I think my stride, I have a, what a lot of people say, I have an ultra running stride. Because I, I land kind of in my midfoot.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't take long steps. So my, my legs are always directly underneath me. You know, I'm not reaching out and I'm not landing on my heels. Yeah. So my body is, is absorbing the impact very well. Uh, but I've never, I've literally, literally never had a knee ache. That's
0: amazing. <laughs> I
1: mean, I've, never, I mean, I've had muscles that after a 24 hour run or a hundred mile race, yeah, my muscles are sore the next day. But I'm talking about injury. Uh, but typically, I can do a hundred mile race or a 24 hour run and run eight or ten miles the next day without pain. <laughs> it's crazy. That's crazy, right? That is it's, it's crazy. It's really crazy.
0: Um, well, let's talk a little bit about. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Sorry. No, I just said I, I know not everybody's that lucky because I have people come in my store every day that, uh, you know, I was running last week and all of a sudden my knee started hurting or, you know, my, my piriformis or my sciatic nerve. You know, they've got some little something that's a hitch, you know, and I, I sometimes I, I don't understand it because i I've, I've never had it myself. Right. Uh, but I think, like, again, I think part of it is genetics. Part of it is the fact that I do listen to my body. So in other words, if I go out and I think, OK, I'm going to run eight miles and I get a mile or two in and I'm, I'm not feeling it, I'll turn around and go home.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I won't push it to the point that I'm going to injure myself, you know. Or if I do have something that is tight or not feeling just right, I'll take two days off and not run where some people will try to run through it. Right. And then the, and then the third thing is being in the running business for 30 plus years. I know running shoes. Like the back of my hand, I, I can you can hand me a shoe blindfolded, and I can tell you what brand and style it is. Probably,
0: wow.
1: Uh, I just know the shoes, so I'm always in the right shoe, and I I wear a different pair of shoes every day.
0: Uh, really?
1: Yeah, I've got forty five pairs of shoes in my closet, <laughs> uh, and they're and I don't ever put more than one or two hundred miles on them.
0: Wow. Okay, so let's talk about running shoes a little bit. I mean that the that, the jury is out on shoes oh my goodness i mean could it be right. any more confusing so what are some of the things that you have that you look you help people with like what what is, what would you tell someone to look for when they're going to find a running shoe
1: well we always tell people my i have a great staff my staff at my store is unbelievable they've all got running store experience my store manager has 20 years in the business my assistant manager 15. and you're uh, in one frisco of my, right yes and and one of my part-time guys I used to work with at Luke's Locker. He was in a running business. He's been in a running business for about 35 years. Wow. So, and, and then with me, 30 plus. So we've got over a hundred years of experience of working in a running business. So we all know shoes. We all know feet. We all know what to, you know, how to help people. But what I tell, what we tell people, all of us, we're on the same page with this. When you buy a shoe, close your ears, close your eyes. And what we, what we mean by that is, Forget what color it is and how it looks. It doesn't matter. This isn't a fashion thing, right? This is about footwear and and feel and fit. So close your eyes and ears. Don't don't listen to what brand it is, what style it is, what color it is. It doesn't matter. Get the shoe that, that feels good. And secondly, and kind of part B of it, uh, close your ears, is forget what size it is. It doesn't matter if it's an 8, 9, 10. If it fits your foot, it fits your foot. Mm-hmm. And it's, and I hate to say this because I'm not a male chauvinist, but more women than guys are stuck on size.
0: Well, yeah, because, because, because I mean, you know, I go in, I think I wear a nine and I leave with a 10 and a half boat.
1: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. and women are, they're like, no, I'm a seven. I'm a seven. I'm a seven. I've been a seven since I was 16 years old. I'm like, I don't care. Eight and a half fits you. <laughs> right. Deal with it. Call it a seven. I don't, the number doesn't really mean anything. Right? They
0: really should so, be size them to vanity sizes, like
1: the well, right shoes. You know,
0: together. Th-
1: they should, but I think they're of the mindset like we are, because again, I've been in the business for thirty years. What does it matter? Nobody even knows what size it is, except you, right? You can tell your girlfriend that you're in a size seven, and she wouldn't know, right? Now she might look at it and say, "Yeah, that seven's a ten and a half,"
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know,
1: uh, but. But, like I say, the number really doesn't mean anything. I can show you three shoes from the same company, and I won't mention any brands because I'm not here for commercialization. But I can, there's one brand, I can show you three different styles of shoes, and it, you'd be a seven and a half in one style, an eight in another one, and an eight and a half in the third. Same brand, right? So you'd think they'd all fit the same, but they no. don't. When anytime you change the the upper material, or the shape of the upper, it can change the size of the shoe. And So, again, that's why you can't go by number. It really doesn't matter. Um, But, you know, like I said, anytime you change the way uh, a a shoe feels with the material on the upper, it's going to change the sizing of it. So what's sense.
0: the most important consideration for a running shoe? Obviously, you said how it fits, but is there, you know, there's so many trends. What, What is what is the most important thing after fit?
1: <clears throat> for me, uh, in my opinion, is you go out and run, and we encourage everybody to go out the front door and run down the sidewalk. You know, just to stand there in a pair of shoes and kind of go step on your right foot, then you go to your left foot. Put your weight on your right foot. Then you, okay, that tells you which one may be softer, it doesn't doesn't tell you how it feels when you're running because running, it, it, it's every shoe's designed to run in, not to stand in, right? Mm. So the technologies are based around how it runs, not how it feels when you put it on. And so if you're not running in it, you're not going to know if the technology works for you and if the size works for you, right? Yeah. You're not, you're not going to know whether it slips in the heel. Because again, just trying it on and standing up in it, you may know whether it's long enough or too short, but you don't really know how it's going to feel when you're running. Because some shoes may feel fine when you put them on, but then you go running and, and the heel slaps right. or or the toe box is too short or, you know, whatever. So you, you go out and run them. But I, I think the key is, is um, you don't want something that's too minimal, but you don't want something that's too cushioned. Part of the part of the thing I think that happened has happening in our world is that folks go to whatever feels really soft and cushy. And to me, that's that's danger zone. That's red flag to me. Uh, because if you think about it, if a shoe's got two inches of EVA foam full of air, right? Cause air is injected into that foam. That's what gives it the softness, right? Okay. Well, every time you, you run some of that air is squished out, right? That's the reason she goes from being so soft when you put it on in the store and 300 miles later, it's harder because air has gone out of that, that midsole. Right. And so anytime you hit something, it feels that that soft. That also means there's going to be very little stability to it. Right. Because if it's that soft, it's going to have a. It's like if you if I drop a golf ball on a concrete floor, what happens? It bounces back to me, right? If I drop that same golf ball, exact same ball on a on a feather mattress, what does it do? It just thuds, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Feels it would feel better than hitting that hard concrete, but yet, do you really want a shoe that? just thuds and it's so soft that you just kind of land on it then to, to run you, you've got to force yourself so you have to work harder in that soft shoe to run than you do a, a firm shoe
0: that's really interesting that's- i haven't thought about that
1: yeah most people don't because they like the softness they like that big foam mattress well, well and again, too, like i'm
0: a heavier runner and i know for heavier runners i mean we're we're told you know you've got to watch the you're trying to minimize the impact of your own body on you know the earth <laughs> right um but but you would you would argue that that might be worse
1: well the only thing i can say meredith i've got 120,000 miles with no injuries yeah you tell, <laughs> yeah you, <I> <laughs> you tell me and i yeah. and i run in lightweight shoes yeah because again how are you going to go faster if you're in a heavy shoe
0: right how,
1: how are you going to go faster if all the effort is you, and not some of it is you because it bounced and sprung off the concrete or the asphalt. Well,
0: I learned something already. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little uh, bit about what you have done outside of outside of running, and or maybe as an extension of of running, because you've done some pretty remarkable things, like the Exodus Foundation and and some more. So, tell me about that.
1: Well, uh, after I was released from prison. Uh, Again, I came out with the attitude, you know what, I went in there being, my whole life for 33 years prior to going to prison was about Mike Rouse. Everything was about me. How how can I look better? How can I have more money? How can I be more successful? How can I have more friends? How can Mike do this? How can I, you know, everything was about me accomplishing something. And you know where it got me? You know, Reno Penitentiary.
0: Right. <laughs> That's
1: where it landed and so when I came out, I said, you know, along with that changing everything, part of that everything was, it's not about you anymore, boy. It's about everybody else. Yeah. And so I took the attitude that if I give back to others, I will be blessed by it more than if I give back to me. And so that became my my Frito. And so when I got out, I, I, I realized that here I was, 34 years old. <clears throat> Criminal record, but yet with a college degree, a loving family, other than my drugs, a a good moral attitude. You know, I'm not a a lawbreaker other than my cocaine thing. You know, I'm, I'm a good guy, right? Yeah. I don't steal. I don't, all the kind of positive things you want to think. Then you got the guy, the typical guy who's in the penitentiary. The average education is eighth or ninth grade. The average guy has a family that's given up on him because he was a, No good guy. He took from them. He made fun. You know, he he embarrassed them. All all the stuff that he does. Uh, Most of them have never held a job. They were crooks. They were thieves. They were robbers. They were drug addicts. They were drug sellers. Everything that you do to get sent to the penitentiary, that's who they were. They weren't guys that held, you know, $50,000 a year jobs for the most part. So you got a guy with no education, no real loving family, uh, no job skills. And yet they sit, sitting and, and they've been locked away for a year, five years, two years, whatever the time frame was. Now they're supposed to walk out of there and do everything perfect or they're going back. Right. Well, how do they do that? Nobody wants to hire them. They're, they're a criminal, right? They don't have an education. They don't have a resume. They don't have a family you know, su- to support them probably. And they're not going to go to a church for help because that's for perfect people, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, everybody goes to church is perfect. Right. And, and so that's that's what they come out with. And so I thought, you know, I'm the lucky guy here. Even though I made my mistake, I learned from it. I've got this great support system out here. But that other guy doesn't. How do I help that guy get back on track? And unfortunately, we don't have time to go into the whole story. If you read my book, you you might know it. But I, I ran into some people shortly after I came to Dallas who helped me form a board of directors and a 501c3 and we called it exodus and we were for lack of a better term it was a halfway house but it was not a government thing it was a it was a a personal thing it was a charitable uh uh organization where we bought an apartment complex in east dallas and we would house the ex-convict who really wanted to do right now and their family and their kids and we- helped them find jobs, helped them with counseling, got the kids tutors to get them called up in school because all these kids had moved while dad was incarcerated from house to house to house and not, not going to school as much as they should and just needed a lot of help in a lot of different ways. Right. And so we, we, we did that. And uh, in 1987, when that organization was started, the incarceration rate or the recidivism rate in Texas was 77%. And what I mean by that is that 77 out of 100 guys, when they're released from prison, go back within a year. 77 out of 100 go back within a year because, again, they go back to the same old thing. They go back to selling drugs. They go back to stealing to make, you know, pay rent or to buy a car or whatever. And so, 77 out of 100 go back. Well, the first 10 years that we had Exodus, and that's when I kind of handed it off to another gentleman, but. The first 10 years, we had 480 families that went through the program and only six went back to prison.
0: Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> pretty
1: pretty good rate, huh? 3% instead of 77. It's
0: almost like your injury rate.
1: <laughs> right?
0: Almost. <laughs> right?
1: And yeah. so, but, but I learned through that, that, you know, giving back makes a difference. Uh, and it kind of reinforced my whole concept of, you know, giving back to others makes you a better person in the end um, and so that that organization here now 31 years later is still going uh it's gotten much bigger uh, once i let it go it you know really grew <laughs> uh, but but that one that that's uh that got going and then in 1991 after the first Persian Gulf War uh i had some Kurdish friends and uh, found out that there were 2,000 Kurds that were brought to Dallas out of a Saddam Hussein prison camp uh, and were just dumped off of uh, an airplane in, in North Dallas. Uh, and these were families uh, that were sheep herders in Iraq. Uh, they had no job skills. They couldn't speak English. They had the clothes that they had on when they put them on the airplane. That's all they own. And the government was giving them free housing and food stamps. So, you know, these are 14, 15, 16 people families living in two and three bedroom apartments in North Dallas. Imagine that. With the clothes they've got on, free rent and food. But they can't speak English. They never were allowed to go to school when they were in Iraq. Saddam would not let them go to school. Uh, Wouldn't let them see doctors, dentists. So They'd never seen a doctor or a dentist. They'd never been to school. They couldn't speak any language but Kurdish, which no one in the world speaks but them. Right. And they couldn't read or write because they weren't allowed to go to school. And so here they are living in North Dallas. And although they were safe, they had no tools to get started. And so my Kurdish friends had come to me and said, how can you help them? And so we, I formed another 501c3 called the Kurdish Relief Association. I furnished the 52 apartments with furniture. They literally were sleeping on the floors uh, and eating food out of a can and, you know, vegetables that were raw because they had no utensils. But we furnished those 52 apartments and uh got them clothes uh and then in our my 501c3 the curtis relief association we we had doctors come in give them shots for school talked uh, had teachers from the richardson school district that came out and took the kid taught them how to read and write. they didn't know how to hold a pencil um all those kinds of things and got them integrated back in society helped the man find jobs in construction uh just doing different things and uh that only lasted for about three or four years because we, they didn't really need it after that. Um, because they, once they learned the skills, they, they made it in America. They're all, you know, that was 20, what, 20, 18 and 20 uh, something years ago. Anyway, um, yeah. they're all doing fine uh, in the process. I actually started a school in northern Iraq in the no-fly zone of northern Iraq uh, above uh, Baghdad, uh, a city called Dahouk. Um, so, and I snuck in and out of there many times, uh, in doing that school. So I, I've had a pretty interesting life, <laughs> <laughs> um, as you can imagine.
0: And now you have a running store.
1: And now I have a running store, my own running store. I've Full circle. Full circle. Came back to work in retail. And part of my thought process when I started way back there with, uh, you know, the, the retail store originally was that I wanted to own my own store, but in order to do so, I had to First of all, get some money. And secondly, I had to learn what it was. Even though I'd owned my own company with my dad, construction company, I'd, I knew how to run a business, but not a retail store. And so I, I started learning there. And then I worked on the wholesale side for five different brands and was national sales manager for two of those. Uh, so I've been very, very fortunate. Um, and on our store run last night, I was telling a young lady who had heard about my, my story. And I'm kind of sharing some of the things with her. And I I told her, I said, I'll never forget laying in that bunk uh, there in my cell one night thinking, you know, when I get out of here, uh, I'm not, I can't go back into construction. I'm not going to have any money. I'm bankrupt. So I'm going to live in a trailer park. I'll have three or four friends. I'll make minimum wage. That's going to be my life for the rest of my life. Because I had to leave all my friends. Uh, Again, I had no money and I had nothing. Mm -hmm. And Fast forward twenty something years later, and I'm a national sales manager for two different running stores, uh, running shooting brands. Uh, the greatest triathlete, the greatest runners in the world, or friends of mine, Beb Kofleski, you know America's sweetheart, winning New York and and Boston after the bombing, is mm-hmm. one of my de- is one of my dearest friends. Desiree uh, Linden, who just won Boston this year, I I I worked with her when she was in high school in San Diego. Wow. Uh, He's uh, one of my dearest friends. McKeely Jones, uh, Craig Alexander, uh, Chris McCormick, two of the greatest male triathletes in the world. Marinda Carfrey, three time world champion. They're all friends of mine. <laughs> you know, very, very close friends of mine. Uh, my best buddy is Mike Riley, the voice of Iron Man.
0: He's my best buddy, too. <laughs> oh, Riles
1: <Rouse laughs> is one of my dearest friends in the world. I mean, and I'm thinking one day in a sale, I'll never have a friend. Yeah. nobody's gonna ever give me a shot and my life today is richer than it could have ever been that's amazing that's so amazing. i'm a lucky guy
0: you are and I, I feel lucky that i got to speak with you so i've got one more question for you okay this podcast is called the same 24 hours and it came from the idea that we all have the exact same 24 hours but it's what we do with those 24 hours that leads to our greater, greatest health, happiness, and success. So what is something that you, Mike Rouse, what do you do in your 24 hours kind of on a daily basis, on a consistent basis that you think leads to your greatest health and happiness?
1: Well, first of all, Meredith, I want to congratulate you on the name because when I, when I saw that that was the name of your podcast, I, was, I fell in love with the name. So <laughs>
0: Thanks. I have
1: said a million times to folks down through the years working – all kinds of events and expos and in retail stores and with reps and at races, all that stuff. They say, how do you, how do you do all this running? You know, I mean, I've done 4 I've just looked at it this morning. I've done 420 runs this year. This is the 201st day of the year, right? This is day 201 of of 2018. I've done
0: 400,
1: (laughs) I've done 420 runs this year already, 1,830 miles. And and what i what I mean by that is, um, we all we all say I can't find the time. How do you find it? And I've told people well, for years you don't find the time. You make the time. You make make the time. I will run every day. I don't care if I have to get up at three a.m. or go to bed at one a.m. because I got my run in at midnight. I will get my run in. I will make the time to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't
1: I don't find the time because if you're looking to find time. We've all got 24 hours that we can stay busy. You know, kids, job, bed, <laughs> eating. We can all, we, we've all got, like, the name of your show is perfect, 24 hours. That's, we've all got the exact same amount of time. How do I, how do I find time to run 420 times? And somebody else says, I can't run, but once a week, because I don't have time. <laughs> Please, if you don't, if you don't make the time, you're killing yourself. Not anybody else. You're hurting yourself because you've got to make time to get healthy uh, uh, to do it when you can. And I don't care if it's 15 minutes is all you could find.
0: Yeah. Or whatever it is. I mean, it doesn't yeah. have to be running. What, whatever exactly. whatever just, is burning. Just, just, like whatever you got to do, you got to do it and make the time for it.
1: Exactly. It may be getting on an elliptical in your gym yeah. or, you know, at your house. It may be getting on a treadmill. It may be lifting weights. It may just be sitting at your computer with a, with a dumbbell as you're typing with one hand and, you know, using the other one to do uh, curls. But do, do something, you know. Uh, everybody's got time. They just don't make it. That's you know, right. they think they've got to find it. Um, so, uh, but, but I, I literally, for me, and I know this is Mike Rouse and I'm biased, but running is a lifestyle for me. It's a hundred percent lifestyle. Uh, it's not just a sport. It's not just a hobby or a habit. It's a lifestyle. I I literally have on running shorts twenty four hours a day on the most. Seriously.
0: Well, since I got out of my legal job, I have on like workout pants every day, just in case yeah. I need to like go do some squats.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't care if I have on <laughs> if I have on jeans. I've got running shorts on under it. <laughs> Seriously. And and my car has got three pairs of running shoes and two pairs of shorts and two shirts in it, too. I mean, I, I'm always ready to run if I have to or if I need to. So you to just have
0: does your pants have Velcro so you can just strip them off and go if you have to. Well,
1: to be honest with you, I, I, because I own a running store, I wear running clothes every day anyway. That's right. That's
0: right. I'm,
1: I, I'm not the guy who has to wear a coat and tie to work or the lady that has to, has to wear a dress, and you know. But that's because you
0: created the life you wanted. And I, I think there's so much, you, you know, people say, I think one of the biggest lies that we're told is I have to or I, I can't change this because or I must do something. And, and so much of that is false. I mean, certainly there are times in our life where we have to do things we don't want to do, but we are always able to make a choice and change our direction. And you get right. to wear running clothes every day because you made a choice that that's what you wanted to do.
1: Right. Agreed. Agreed. And yeah. actually, I know not everybody. Not we can't all own a running store. We can't all work in the running business. Uh. But but we do. We physically, we all need some kind of physical activity, just to make us a better person. Yeah. Uh, it re- it renews your mind. And and I don't want to get too much off into this, but. A quick statement about it. People that run and think they have to have an iPod or their phone for music, I don't understand at all. <laughs> I mean, and I get it that some people, they get so bored or they need something to keep their mind off the running because it's painful. I, I Maybe I can understand it to, a, in a, to an extent, but you need to listen to your body. You become a better runner when you do. And you run within yourself not to keep time with the music. Um, but You know, and it's a safety thing to me. Um, It's not very safe to run with music. Um, It's so
0: hard, though, especially if you're a huff and puffer. Like for me, I hate to hear the sound of my huffing and puffing. (laughs) (laughs) And I know I need to slow down. And that's the thing. I mean, that's probably what you're saying. When I'm huffing and puffing and I'm out on a 10-mile run, it means I'm going too hard. So I should probably slow down. So that's why I don't need music. I need to listen. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well you know I have a funny little saying that i I, I use this all the time people because they give me a hard time about not having it and I say you know what my body makes the most beautiful music you have ever heard in your life it is a Beethoven <laughs> symphony that's like no other uh and I just love to listen to my body and, and but again that's kind of me spinning it into a positive right you know? right that I want to hear my body and uh, part of the reason why I think I love running so much is because I do run within myself. Uh, you know, I don't huff and puff. I, I, I mean, I, I do occasionally, but you know, <laughs> I, I literally just run, I run what's comfortable, a comfortable pace for me. Yeah. And so by doing that, it makes it more enjoyable. And anytime you enjoy something, the odds of you going out there and doing it again and again and again, are that much greater, you know, if every That's time. the
0: biggest thing too, like with beginner runners, um, you have to go at the pace you can do it sustainably and enjoyably and even if that's walking and sometimes it's walking just like your your beginning was right yeah right
1: well like i said as long as you're enjoying something the odds of you doing it are so much greater you know you show me a woman that likes to shop for nine hours she'll find time to shop (laughs) right
0: and she'd probably be a good ultra runner
1: yeah right (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, whatever it is that we love with with snow skiing, shopping, uh, you know, barbecuing, you know, gardening, we all find time to do those kinds of things or we make the time to do them because we enjoy them. Well, for me, running is that. Uh, Right. And so I think when you when you do it, though, to a level that is enjoyable, the odds of you finding time to do it or making the time are that much greater.
0: That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for being a part of the show and we'll look for you on social media.
1: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity.